together. Um, uh, I'm really, really pleased with uh, the section that we're going to be talking about this week, section four, the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, before we begin, though, um, it's always important that we start with a word of prayer and that we have uh, the Lord to have his spirit to be with us and help us and guide us and direct us in our thoughts and our understanding. So this morning, I'm going to ask... Uh, if uh, Brother Luke, would you go ahead and just offer a word of prayer for us this morning before we begin? Our dear God in heaven, Lord, I'd come to you now at this uh, time as we begin to uh, uh, open uh, your word, Lord, that uh, you would uh, guide our brother Michael as uh, he would direct us in uh, this pa these passages, Lord, that uh, our minds would be open and that our hearts would uh, be pierced by thy love and thy uh, spirit that is in your word, Lord, that we would be able to... Uh, uh, take it and use it uh, in our minds to help one another to understand it and to uh, open our eyes that we'd be able to use it in our lives, Lord. And we just thank you for this beautiful day and continue to watch over everybody as they gather in that uh, you would give us the strength to uh, make it through the uh, the temperatures that we would not uh, let it uh, take away from the spirit that you have to offer us, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke. So... Hopefully, before you've come to class, you're familiar with uh, the theme scripture for this week that's been selected for us, um, section four in the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, <clears throat> if you notice on the outline of things for the week, they've listed a lot of the uh, characteristics or attributes of, uh, of saints, of being a saint that's listed in, as part of section four. And uh, I know that each night they're going to be addressing some of those. As I was praying and meditating over what to bring this week as it relates to this, I kept coming back and I kept feeling, feeling the nudgings of the Spirit that I needed to address the first part of Section 4 that really isn't addressed in the evenings. And that's because those characteristics, those attributes of those who are... Uh, to be a part of this, this work, uh, it's a marvelous, it calls it a great and marvelous work, right? And so I want to read this so we get the whole context of what the Lord gives us in section four before we get to those attributes. I want to focus more on the first part of, of, of this section. So if you have your Doctrine and Covenants with you, you have your scriptures, I encourage you to follow along. It's, it's good to look and see exactly what the Lord has said. This was given in 1829, so this is before, before the church is organized, okay? Before the church is organized. Given, through Joseph, uh, given to Joseph Smith Sr. through his son, the prophet. Now, this is important, right? What is the significance, by the way, of Joseph Smith Sr.? What role will Joseph Smith Sr. play in the church? He was. He's not just a patriarch. He was going to be the the presiding patriarch of the church, right? He'll be the first patriarch, right? The first father to the church. And this is an answer for Joseph Smith Sr. from his son, okay? Given through his son by the Lord. Start in verse one. Now behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Therefore, O ye that embark in the service of God, See that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. 
Therefore, if ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. For behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest. And lo, he that thrusteth in his sickle with his might, the same layeth up in store that he perish not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. And faith, hope, charity, and love, with an eye single to the glory of God, qualifies him for the work. Remember, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and diligence. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Amen. Several things about this very short but powerful section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay? 1829, before the church formed. A marvelous work is about to come forth, right? It hadn't quite come forth yet. The beginnings of it, right? We know that Joseph already had some experiences leading up to this, right? With the angels, and we'll talk about that. But the church had not yet been organized. The marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. And then it says, if ye have a desire to serve, right? If you have a desire, right? You're called to the work. So all of you, I'm assuming, right? have a desire you probably wouldn't be here this week all of you are called okay called to serve to testify right to bear witness of this great and glorious gospel and you and that's not necessarily a priesthood member to do that okay because a lot of times people say in the church oh but the priesthood they can go out and preach and teach and that's true but what are we as members supposed to be doing To bear witness, to testify the things we know that the Lord has done in our lives, right? That's the importance of a prayer and testimony service, right, in our branches. That's the importance of talking and testifying to our neighbors, right? You heard uh, Brother Chuck last night, right? Bear witness of testimony of what the Lord had done through bearing witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We'll get you our mic here. During the days of the organization, Joseph was asked what the highest office in the church was. He said a member in good standing. That's correct. A member in good standing. Absolutely. Now, this marvelous work. Have you heard that phrase before? A marvelous work is about to come forth. What is this marvelous work? You're part of it. So what is it? I see people saying the gospel. The old gospel being restored again. Okay. Anything else you can think of? Those are all good answers. The restoration. Do what? Restoration of what? God's Christ Church. Of Christ Church, okay. Bringing back to Christ Church, okay. Let me give you a scripture that parallels this out of the Book of Mormon, just so you can see that the Lord is speaking the same, and he's referencing the same marvelous work here in the Book of Mormon. So let's turn to... Sure, get the right one here. The first book of Nephi. And it talks about here in chapter 3 of the first book of Nephi about the Gentiles. This is a we are a nation, right? A Gentile nation. It talks about. Uh, what is going to happen on this land, right? He's talking to the people who inhabited it. He's talking about what's to come here among the Gentiles on this land. 
Joseph's land, right? We're going to talk about Joseph's land here in a second. And if you look at verse 213, it, it gives warning and promise. In verse 213 of chapter 3 of the first book of Nephi, the Lord has written, Therefore, woe be unto the Gentiles, if it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God. For the time cometh, future tense, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and marvelous work among the children of men. A work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them, unto the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity and also destruction, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil of which I have spoken. So this great and marvelous work that section 4 is proclaiming is about to come forth with the reestablishment, as was pointed out, of his church on earth. Here we have reference to this in Nephi, in the Book of Mormon, telling the people that this is going to take place and it's going to be either for good or for bad, depending on how they respond to it. If they harden their hearts, it'll be to their destruction and captivity. If they don't harden their hearts against the Lamb of God and accept it, this great and marvelous work is going to be uh, among them here in this land. Now, this is Joseph's land, right? Promised to Joseph through, if you um, go back scripturally, back to Genesis, when hands were laid and uh, Joseph had pro was promised certain things, and Joseph uh, was promised that uh, his posterity, right, they would run over the wall and they would go across the oceans and this land has been promised as Joseph's land. And who are Joseph's two sons? Ephraim and Manasseh, right? And both of them. And Manasseh was actually the older of the two, right? Manasseh and then Ephraim. And normally the blessing would have gone to Manasseh with a greater blessing than Ephraim. However, you recall from Genesis, right, that that was switched. And uh, they laid hands, right, the sign of the cross. <laughs> and they switched hands and said, wait a second, that, that shouldn't be. He says, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. Ephraim will get the greater blessing. Even though he's not the eldest, he'll get the greater blessing. Not that Manasseh won't be blessed, but Ephraim will receive the greater blessing. And that this land was designated as Joseph's land. We're talking about the Americas here. What do we have here in the Americas? Ephraim and Manasseh. We have a lot of Ephraims and a lot of Manasseh, right? Uh, we know from the Book of Mormon. Why was it that Laban... They had to go back to Laban and get the genealogy of their fathers. Lehi said, go back and get them. And, you know, Lehi, Lehi was very adamant that they go back and get the genealogy from Laban. And two sons, Laman and Lemuel, remember, were like, no, we don't go back. You know, we're going to get killed. It's going to be terrible. Nephi said, yeah, we'll go back and get it. They got it, and the Lord delivered Laban in their hands, and they got the genealogy. Why was so, that so important that they have the genealogy? Okay, so they wouldn't dwindle in belief, and they could trace back what? The heritage and the promises that were given to them, and that it recalls, it says in those records that they were of Manasseh. And so you have all of Le uh, Lehi's family, right, that is of the tribe of Manasseh. 
and the promises were given them. And how many of you have had a patriarchal blessing here? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of you. Okay, I know patriarchal blessings don't always state what tribe or what blessing, uh, what tribe you're numbered with. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. If the Lord wants it revealed, he does. Sometimes he doesn't. But many, many of the patriarchal blessings of people in the church, many of them reference the fact that they come from the tribe of Ephraim. And uh, what's interesting about that is they've been brought here, right, to Joseph's land. They've been gathered in. I want to kind of trace back this great and marvelous work, though it was about to come forth in its fullness, the fullness of the gospel with the restoring of the church. I want to trace back just a little bit this morning and show you how the Lord had been planning this and preparing this all the way through. Okay? We can go back to the fact that, you know, you had the great uh, uh, days of darkness during the Dark Ages and the coming forth of the Reformation, right? Without the Reformation, the restoration wouldn't have been possible, right? There was reformers who said, we need to reform. Things aren't right. They're not the way they were at the time of Christ. And so the Reformation, right, prepared the way, set the, set the stage, so to speak, for the movement that would be later the Restoration. And many of those of the Reformation, right, and you guys that have gone through the Go and Teach slides know this, right, many of them admitted there's no way that the church can have its former splendor without a restoration from heaven. Many of them admitted that. We're going to reform it and do the best we can, but without a restoration, it is impossible. And so you see God working by bringing over many people who are the tribe of Ephraim who didn't even know it to this land to join Manasseh who were here already from Lehi and, and those who have come previous in the Book of Mormon and bringing them to this land, Joseph's land, as promised to prepare the way for the coming of the great and marvelous work. And not only did he bring them here, but he brought a, a system of government to allow that to take place. How many of you read, this is a beautiful day to be talking about this, how many of you read our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? Some of the most marvelous documents ever written by the hand of man under the inspiration of God. If you go through the Constitution, there's never been a, a document uh, so beautifully written that allows for freedom and yet structure at the same time meaning the freedom of people to choose, but also putting in guidance and guideposts and keeping power limited. And this was brought to this land intentionally by the hand of God in Joseph's land so that the great marvelous work could be established. I mentioned this is 1829 when section four is given, right? 1829, of course we know the declaration was 1776. I hope you know that from today, July 4th, 1776. We know the Constitution, right, was in the 1880s there, were, uh, sorry, 1780s when it was uh, ratified. And so this country was a very, very young in its infancy at the time of the experiences that Joseph's going to have. Just to give you how the Lord was planning this all along. So Joseph, anybody know when Joseph Smith was born? 1805, very good. 1805. The Lord was already preparing, right, the way. This young nation, right, in 1803 was petitioned by Napoleon of France that we might buy what was known as the Louisiana Purchase because he needed the money so bad in his war against England. 
And at first, it was just a, a, uh, uh, an offer to, to, to buy uh, basically Louisiana, the state of Louisiana around New Orleans initially. And when Jefferson and them went over there to talk to them, they said, hey, how much more will it give us if we give you all of this land? And they bought it for like $15 million. It's like less than three cents an acre. $15 million for the entire central portion of what we know as the United States, including what we know as Missouri today. 1803, that happened. Joseph was born in 1805. Now, the time period's here, right? The Lord's preparing the way. Joseph has his uh, first experience in the grove. What year was that? Anybody remember? 1820, correct, 1820. Missouri became a territory in 1818 and became officially a state in 1821. Okay. Preparation. As things are happening with the Lord's work, he's preparing the way here in the land for this to take place. So we have 1821, Missouri's a state. Joseph has his first experience in 1820 and multiple experiences, of course, following that that leads up to this experience that we just read in section four in 1829, okay? And this was designed to prepare the way for the marvelous work. There's, the Constitution, as beautiful it is, is lacking one, one very important thing. And what is that important thing? The fullness of the gospel, right? The Constitution was set up to allow the fullness. It does not have it contained in it, obviously. But it was set up so that the fullness of the gospel could come to this land, Joseph's land. He brought the people here. He set up the manner in which it would be governed, right? You don't think that the Lord had his hand in, in this? Anybody know where, where they got the idea in the Constitution for the three branches of government? Where did that come from? Among many other things in the Constitution. It came from the Bible. It came from Isaiah, right? If you look at Isaiah, the 33rd chapter, right, in there, they knew their scriptures. They were religious people. And the Lord pressed upon them, right? And they read that passage where it says, I am the Lord thy God, talking to Israel. I am the Lord thy God. I am thy lawgiver. That's where they got the legislative branch. I am thy king, the executive branch. And I am thy judge. The judicial, right? If God divided himself in that way to describe how he was to ancient Israel, many of our founding fathers said if that was good enough for God to describe himself in those three ways to divide himself up, then we need to divide our government up that way too. And they did. A lot of things we have in our Constitution, right, come from things that they understood religiously in the Bible. And so... When this comes along in 1829, the way has already been set. The way has already been prepared for the marvelous work, okay? And, and uh, I want to go back to Joseph's experience in the grove because here's where the restoration, and, and this is what concerns me today. I think we're losing the sense of what it means of the restoration. We view it as a title or a label, we don't know what it really means. What was actually restored? Why was the restoration necessary? Why is it still important today that we hang on and we understand 
that which had been restored, okay? And I want to take you back because what brings the restoration about is the very first experience of a young boy by the age of, of 14. Joseph's experience in the grove, right? How many 14-year-old boys in here, okay? Young people anyway, didn't have to be 14 exactly. Believing on the words of the Lord, seeking the Lord out, right? And getting an answer because they wanted to know deep within their soul what was right. If you've read Joseph Smith Tells His Own Story, excellent reading. It is the, one of the pivotal testimonies that we have in the restoration of why the restoration had to come about. It starts with this experience in the Grove, 1820. You recall, and I won't read the whole experience, obviously, but you recall that Joseph, right, had read a passage of Scripture out of James and says, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God, who giveth all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given. He said, never had a passage of scripture had such influence and power as that at that time when I read that. Now, I don't know about you, I've, I've been the same way where I've read scripture over and over and over. And, yeah, it was good scripture. And then all of a sudden, you read it one time under that, that light of the spirit, and it takes on new meaning. It just has something different about it than you've ever seen before. You didn't see it before. That's how this was with Joseph in, the, in this experience in James. He said, never had that passage of scripture been like that that stood out to me and had such impact on me and influence as that scripture at that time. And so he was going to put it to the test, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to ask the Lord. I lack wisdom. I'm going to go and I'm going to ask the Lord, right? A young man who exercised great faith in what was written. He goes to the grove. You know, he, he picks this spot. He gets down and he prays. And immediately he's engulfed, right, with a power he said was real, that was darkness, and felt like it would take his very life. And he says it wasn't an imagined power, it was real. And he says, as I was just about ready to give up myself to this power, I didn't know what it was. He says, I called out unto the Lord, and he says, immediately, immediately, a light shone from above and came down, a pillar of light. And he says, I saw there two personages. And one immediately pointed to the other and says, this is my beloved son, hear him. That is the, the foundational message of the restoration. You must always hear him. From that moment, right, he was given instruction and that spot. And this is where I want to get to, because this is why the restoration had to come about. It was of necessity the marvelous work that section four talks about that we're engaged in, right? So as part of his testimony, he says, "My <clears throat> after uh, the, the darkness was dispelled by this bright light that descended and he saw the two personages, he says, my object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. And no sooner therefore did I get possession of myself again so as to be able to speak then I asked the personage who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right. For at this time, it had never entered into my heart that they were all wrong. And which of them should I join? I was answered that I must join none of them. For they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight that those professors were all corrupt, 
that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and they teach for the doctrine the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He again forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things he did say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. Now, I want to kind of break down why this message is critical to the restoration, what is being restored here. Why we know that there are many, many good people out there in many different denominations at this time, just like there are today, who are doing a lot of good things. And yet, when he asked, he was specifically told, don't join them, for their creeds are an abomination before me. Why was it that their creeds, they believed in Jesus Christ, obviously, they were Christians, why were their creeds an abomination then before the Lord? Let's kind of hash this out. What do you think? Precepts of men and not of God. Okay, they denied that God would speak. That's true. Right? Okay. So a lot of them denied that God would speak. What else? Reggie? Okay, everything was about them and what they were doing instead of about Christ. There was some truth to that, for sure, absolutely. What else? Brother Wayne. They from God. Say that again. Well, they assumed their authority from God. They assumed God. authority from God that they did not necessarily have. That's true, which Joseph wouldn't have known or understood at that point. So, okay, true. What else? Those are all good answers. I want you to think about the fact of what is the purpose of the marvelous work of this church. We're, we're, kind of, we're going re, to reverse this back, okay? We're going to use some re, reverse construction here. Today, what is the purpose of the church? What is the church supposed to do if we're, do, if we're functioning and doing what we're supposed to? Zion, the cause uh, of Zion. Bring forth the cause of Zion, right? Bring forth Zion. And, and, and who is going to be in Zion? And I don't mean who among people. Who's going to be in the middle, in the midst of his people in Zion, I should say? Christ himself, right? Okay? So the church is to prepare us that we can actually abide the presence of Christ in Zion, right? Without Christ's presence, there is no Zion. We know that because Genesis tells us that, right? He dwelled in the midst of his people, and then he called them Zion after that because they were one heart and one mind and dwelled in righteousness. And by the way, later on, that's when they then actually built a city. So we know that the presence of Christ is in Zion and the church is to repair. It's to be the bride that Christ has returned to, right? We'll talk more about that on a different day. What is the purpose then of Zion and of Christ's presence there? What's going to happen in that thousand years in Zion according to scripture? Do I? He'll be bound for a thousand years, absolutely. Satan's bound. And it's to prepare us to come into the presence of who? God the Father, right? That's the whole point. All of the creeds that are in these different denominations, though they did believe in Christ, and though they did teach basic concepts, they lacked any power to bring man back into the presence of God. It was impossible. None of the things that they taught could bring man back in the presence of God. 
and, in, and his son, Jesus Christ. Without that, you don't have anything, right? That's the whole point. What does what, what uh, section 22 tell us? You guys can probably quote this. This is my work and my glory to do what? To bring to pass immortality and the eternal life of man, right? That is my work and my glory. That's the purpose, okay? If we can't come, the only way to have eternal life is to be with God in Christ, right? That eternal life that he talks about, right? To be in that presence. These creeds went so far, but it says they had a form of godliness. They prayed. They sung hymns, I'm sure. They ministered and visited people. They probably helped people who were in need. All very good things, right? But that's where it stopped. They didn't have the power to bring man back into God's presence. And that's why he called it an abomination. The word abomination, something that's an abominable or abomination before him, is something that is sacred and holy for his purposes that is taken and twisted and turned into something less. Right? He says their creeds were an abomination in his sight, which means they didn't have the power didn't have the ability to bring mankind back into God's presence. That's the whole purpose, right? What was lost in the garden? We, we, were, we, we were kicked out of the presence of God. What's the whole purpose of Zion? To bring us back into the presence with Christ there and to prepare us to live with God, the Father. That couldn't happen with all of the creeds and why the restoration was an absolute necessity. What is it in the in uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church being restored, what are the two most important things that we know the church restored to bring, or to help bring, I should say, because it's still your choice, to help bring people back into God's presence? What are two critical things? Brother Eric. Uh, priesthood and the ordinances. Priesthood and the ordinances, absolutely. All right, let's, let's, let's take a scripture to go along with what Brother Eric just said there. Let's turn to section 83 in the Doctrine and Covenants. This gets to where somebody had said they assumed authority. I think Wayne or somebody said they assumed authority. I did not have this one written down, but I want to make sure I, I mention this here. Which verse? 3C. Okay, thank you. There it is, yes. All right. So if we look at 3C, it says, Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of God. Let me back up here and give you the whole thing because it's better if I give you the whole thing. Let's, let's start with 3a. And the Lord confirmed the priesthood also upon Aaron and his seed throughout all their generations, which priesthood also continueth and abideth forever with the priesthood which is after the holiest order of God. And this priesthood uh, ministereth the gospel and holdeth the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, performed by the priesthood with authority, Right? Godliness is manifest, and without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest in the men in the flesh, for without this no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. That had to be restored. 
what was lost at the time of the apostasy when the apostles all uh, passed away and the churches started to drift away, right? They drifted to, to, to some very nice man-made creeds and doctrines, and some of them not so nice, but they lost the authority of the priesthood and the power to administer the ordinances. Now, Brother Oakman talks a lot about this, the importance of ordinances and priesthood, a lot in several of his sermons. And one of the things he says, if you change the ordinance or you change the authority of those who are ministering the ordinance, you change the spirit behind the ordinance. You don't have the spirit anymore. You don't have the ability, right, to change a person and have the feel of righteousness. And he used to use that uh, example, right? Um, he said, what, what's, the, what's the purpose of ordinance? He says, to give us a feel of righteousness. And the example he used was, he says, I used to walk around with a crooked back. Right? He talked about that. He says, I walked around. I thought I was straight, but he says, I went to a friend of mine who, who was a chiropractor. He says, uh, you're walking around crooked. He says, I don't think I'm crooked. He says, you are. He says, here, here's what you need to do. And he had him stand up against the wall. Right? He says, put your, your heels against the wall, put your butt against the wall, put your back against the wall, your shoulders, your head, and use the wall as your standard. And he says, boy, it felt really awkward and really weird. It didn't feel right, okay? And he, he, he said, now come out here in, in the middle of the room and see if you can do it again. And he said, I went out there and tried to do it, and I couldn't, I couldn't match it again. He says, all you've done is taken another crooked stance, okay? Get back against the wall again and use the standard. And he says, that is exactly what the ordinances are in the church. They are the spiritual standards of righteousness, the feel of what righteousness is so that there's a standard for the people to feel and to know and to experience the presence of God through the ordinances and through the priesthood. This is why it's so important that those two things are always maintained as part of what was restored in the last days. Have you ever noticed what Satan likes to attack the most? The ordinances and the priesthood. Why? Because that's the two critical things to help bring God's people back into his presence. Okay? So we have this experience here. And so I know it sounds harsh when Joseph, and I'm sure when he repeated this, uh, uh, this testimony, this experience he had to others, it seems harsh to say all their creeds are an abomination. But when you look at what they couldn't do, you understood why the Lord told them that. Right? As good as these people might be, as well-intended as they might be, all the good that they might still be doing, that's great, but it cannot bring you back into God's presence. And so this is why it says, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts really are far from me. They teach for doctrine the commandments of men. Having a form of godliness, they deny the power thereof. Where is the power of godliness manifested? We just read in section 83 through the ordinances and priesthood. Otherwise, it cannot be manifest to men in the flesh. It cannot be, right? So that's really what the Lord was talking about here, okay? Do you see why the restoration had to be? Why you're a part of a marvelous work that is unique in all the world? And why the restoration is so important that you maintain the integrity of that which has been restored in your care as Latter-day Saints, Right? Um, let me ask you this question. Okay. 
How many of you have had an experience in uh, the ordinances? Maybe it was your baptism, maybe it was confirmation, maybe it was administration, maybe you witnessed an ordination or had that, right? Maybe it was something that you uh, experienced as part of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Maybe it was when the marriage covenant was made and how sacred that is. Any of those ordinances, you felt the power of godliness manifest and you could see the effects of it multiple times. And what I've also noticed is when those experiences happen, the first thing that Satan tries to do is to destroy the testimony of the ordinance. I witnessed, uh, I witnessed this at a reunion, oh, probably 10 or 15 years ago now, uh, up in Iowa, and there was a young girl who just got baptized. Beautiful experience there. She was uh, just full of life, and, and she had wanted to come, and uh, she had been taught and, and wanted to be baptized at reunion, and she was. And then right after her baptism and confirmation, which followed right afterwards, a man who did not carry a very good spirit came right up to her in front, like during right after the service was literally not even hardly ended, came up to her and started to tell her things that this is what's going to happen in your life. And I didn't get in on all of it because I wasn't close enough to hear all of it, but I heard enough of it to know that many of the things that she was being told were things that would uh, destroy her testimony because there are things that probably would not happen. And it was an effort I felt by Satan using this individual to destroy her experience and testimony of her baptism and confirmation that day. And I've seen this over and over, right? Right after those experiences with the ordinances, right? That's where you're, you, you better be on guard because that's exactly the very place that Satan's going to try to destroy that testimony and get you to doubt it get you to, to set it aside or think, well, maybe it wasn't what I thought it was. Brother, right here. Was the gentleman approaching her as uh, uh, trying to carry a good spirit to uh, give her insight? I, 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 he was one of those who, who uh, probably felt like he had a lot of things of insight to give. Yes. Led by the Spirit. But it was, it was not, not good right. things. Some of the things that were shared, and again, I didn't hear all of it, but I heard enough that there were several things that I knew were not, not right, not accurate, and that it would, because they probably would not happen and take place, it would cause her to doubt the whole experience of the whole day. And that was, that was my concern. And so I, I, I shared with the pastor right after that. I said, hey, this guy went up there. You might go talk to the girl. I didn't know the girl, but I said, this is what happened, and you might want to go talk to her to make sure that that, that testimony is not diminished in any way so there's power in the ordinances and there's power in the priesthood and there's power in this work there's no power among ourselves except what's given to us by God right it's by God and so this experience of Joseph in the grove is critical right in 1820 because it tells us why the restoration had to happen and why he was to hear the voice of the Lord hear him in all things because of what he was going to be shared and told to do to bring forth the marvelous work, which, of course, you're a part of today as, as members of his church. Brother Reggie. Some extremely important, and let's not get back to it, is that as priesthood, we understand the difference between our desires and God's direction. Yes. 
that they do not intertwine. Yeah, and if you notice in, in the writings of Paul, Paul's very careful about that. Paul will give revelation to the Lord, and then he'll, a lot of times in his writings, he'll say, now I'm speaking of myself here, and he, he, he delineates that. This is me speaking as Paul, not anything from the Lord, and Paul's very careful about that in a lot of his letters. Several times he mentions that this is me speaking now. Sister in the very back, Luke. Last night in service, we sang Onward to Zion. I'm marching to Zion. And every time I woke up last night, that was going through my mind. Because we are marching to Zion, and it is a beautiful city, and it's going to live for God. Yeah. But I was, it was impressed upon me last night that that's what it was. And that is, the, that is the purpose, right, of what the church is to do, is to bring forth the cause of Zion. I was uh, interested to look at how many times this, this idea of coming into God's presence is so important. There's tons of scriptures related to this about, in different places, related to um, the Lord's presence and, and how he has to be there in his presence for that kind of condition to be. Um, I wanted to take you to an example out of section 36 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is Enoch. Now, the reason why I point this out is, is Enoch, we know, taught repentance. And there was a people that was prepared that Zion became a reality during his time and was taken up into the bosom of the Father. In section 36... Paragraph 1C and D. And it says here, And it came to pass that I turned and went upon the mount. This, this is Enoch. And as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open. And I was clothed upon with glory. And I saw the Lord. And he stood before my face. And he talked with me, even as a man talks one with another face to face. And he said unto me, look, and I will show unto you the world for the space of many generations. What stands out to me about this experience is when he went to the mountain to seek the Lord, he found the Lord, and the Lord clothed upon him with glory. That's coming into God's presence. He was clothed upon with the glory of the Lord, and I saw and stood and talked to him face to face as a man does. We also know references that Moses, right, talked to God face to face on a mountain. Right? And the glory of the Lord was so much on, on Moses that when it left him, it says, I fell to the earth, right? In section 22, it fell to the earth, right? Because he was so weakened by the glory of the Lord leaving him. Brother Mike. I've always wondered at, uh, at Moses' experience at the burning bush when, uh, when the Lord told him to take off the shoes from off his feet for the ground which he stood upon was holy ground. And I've always wondered, maybe that wasn't because the shoes were polluting the holy ground, but so that Moses could be in contact with that holy ground and therefore be clothed with the glory of the Lord. Uh, I, I've always thought that that might be the purpose that he told him that. And also to take off your shoes is very symbolic of humility. You took off your shoes and uh, the humility before the Lord. So probably a couple of reasons there for that. 
I also find it interesting if you look at a couple of other scriptures here. Um, let's stay in section 36 here for a couple of these. Let's move to verse 2, F, G, and H. Because there's constant reference here to being in the presence of the glory of the Lord. So 36, still section 36, verse 2, F, G, and H. And from that time forth there were wars and bloodsheds among them, but the Lord came and dwelt with his people. And they dwelt in righteousness. The fear of the Lord was upon all nations. So great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. And the Lord blessed the land, and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places, and did flourish. And the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness. And there was no poor among them, and he continued his preaching in righteousness unto the people of God. So just because they got to that state, Enoch didn't stop preaching, even though they were in that presence. They st he still preached righteousness, and it says repentance in Genesis, right, to the people. It was so important. Now, this is the power of the restoration, right, to restore that which had been lost, to restore the authority of priesthood, to restore the ordinances, to bring man back into God's presence. And, of course, many people, when I, when I say, what does the restoration stand for? Many people automatically go to one thought and they say the Book of Mormon. And that is true. It did bring forth the Book of Mormon. But that's not the only thing. That's just one small area of the things that were restored. The Book of Mormon is a record, a testimony of Jesus Christ in this land, in Joseph's land. And that's very important. But that wasn't the only thing that was restored, right? What else was restored? Priesthood and the authority of the priesthood, right? Because without that, who's going to administer the ordinances? We know this from Hebrews, right? It says there of necessity must be priests after the order of Melchizedek to administer the law that Christ brought because the priests of the Mosaic law could not administer it. So there had to be those who had the power and authority to administer those ordinances, Okay. The two go hand in hand. Anybody see why it's so important? And again, I don't want to hash up old things from what happened in the church, but anybody see the importance of why it's important that you don't mess with the ordinances or the priesthood if you want to come into God's presence? Okay. All right, let me turn to section 32. The church went into the wilderness, we know. Um, what's this church going to look like? If you'll put a finger in section 32, I'm going to take you to Revelation first, and then I'm going to bring you back to 32. So Revelation chapter 12. So it gives a beautiful description here of things on the earth of the church. In chapter 12, verse 1, this is uh, John the Revelator, and what he saw, he says, that There appeared a great sign in heaven, in the likeness of things on earth, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now stop there for a second. Get that image in your mind, okay? A woman, the church, we know that, 
clothed with the sun, celestial glory. The moon, the old Mosaic law is under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, the apostolic witness, right? And the woman being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and his throne. And there appeared another sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And, all his, and his tail drew the third parts of the stars of heaven, and it cast them in the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was delivered, I'm sorry, woman which was delivered, ready to devour her child after it was born. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore years. Now I want to stop there. This is a visual, it says, in heaven of things and likeness on the earth. It gives us description so we can see it for what it is. Here's the beautiful description of the woman, which is the church. Picture her with the sun, the celestial glory, the moon under her feet, the, the crown of 12 stars, the apostolic witness that she has to all the world. And she's going to bring forth a child. She's traveling uh, with birth. And who's ready to try to do destroy the child right after it's going to be born? The devil, right? A, a red dragon, Satan. He's going to want to destroy that kingdom before it can ever come to maturity, right? We know that that actually happened, right? That's how we got the great apostasy, right? After the apostles, many of them died. And after that time period, slowly, right, uh, Satan was waiting. And what happened to the woman? It says she went into, she fled into the wilderness. She fled into the wilderness. That she might be fed there and kept and preserved for 1,203 score years, okay? Now, what are we told in section 32 then? What is restored? This beautiful woman, the church. She's going to be brought out of the wilderness, right? We're told that in section 32. So let's turn to section 32 real quick. I'm going to start with verse 2 here. Notice it uses the word verily twice, right? We said that verily, verily. That means it's very important, right? Verily, verily. And verily, verily, I say unto you that this church have I established and called forth out of the wilderness. And even so will I gather mine elect from the four quarters of the earth, even as many as will believe in me and hearken unto my voice. What's the foundational message of the restoration? Hear ye him. Those who will hear his voice and are obedient to that, he will gather them from the four quarters of the earth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the field is white, all ready to harvest. Wherefore, thrust in your sickle and reap with all your might, mind, and strength. Open your mouths, and they shall be filled, and you shall become as Nephi of old, who journeyed from Jerusalem in the wilderness. Notice the reference here in section 32 to the exact same reference in section 4. The field is white. All ready to harvest. I've brought this church out of the wilderness. So people always ask, well, what is the wilderness? What's the wilderness? Why does he refer to it as a wilderness that the, that the woman went into and the woman's coming out of here in the restoration? 
And we have one scripture that gives us some idea what the, what the word wilderness means. If you turn to section 85, you can cross-reference this. If you're like me, I like to cross-reference. Right? Go to this section here. This gives you the meaning of this word, right, scripturally. If you look at uh, verse 17, it gives us a little indication about the wilderness. In verse 17 of section 85, it says, Behold, that which you hear is as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In the wilderness, because you cannot see him. My voice, because my voice is spirit. My spirit is truth. And truth abideth and hath no end, and if it be in you, it shall abound. So we're told here that the reason why it's like a voice crying out of the wilderness, the wilderness is because you cannot see him. When the bride, his church, was taken into the wilderness, there was no way that people could see the majesty and power and beauty of God and Christ. It was, it was over, right, while it was in the wilderness. Why was the church then reestablished and brought forth out of the wilderness in section 32 and restored? So that you could see him come back into his presence and talk to him face to face like Enoch did, like Moses did. Did this happen in the church? Let me ask you this question. Was there moments of time because of the restoration that there were those who were sent from above to come and speak and to talk with Joseph Smith and many others. Yeah, many times, right? Probably one of the most notable, right, was the dedication of the temple in Kirtland in 1836. And we know there, right, that they had prepared themselves, they had practiced many of the ordinances with the authority of the priesthood, prepared the priesthood and prepared also that the people might experience that in Kirtland. And we know that Joseph and Oliver, they talk about, right, seeing Moses come and speak to them and give them the keys of the authority of gathering of the tribes of Israel, that Elijah came and gave them, right, the authority of turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to their children, the covenants, the promises that were made to their fathers. We know that Christ himself, Right, stood on the pulpit work of the Melchizedek end of the Kirtland Temple and there spoke behind, as he called it, a veil almost, right, and spoke to them and gave instruction that they might speak and see personally and face to face to come back into the presence of Christ and of the Father eventually, right? That's the purpose. And so all of these things are designed to this. When it says it's in the wilderness, you cannot see him, right? The church was brought forth out of the wilderness that it might be able to, through it, show and bring people back into the presence of Christ and his Father, eventually. That's why, how often do we refer to it as, he's, he's the, the bridegroom and the church is the bride, right? The bride bears the name of the bridegroom. I'm getting into all the symbolism here, right? Why? Because it's the bear witness of him, Right? Church, it was not, it's not about the church. The church was to bear witness of, of him and the glory that he had. And so we're waiting for the bridegroom to come, right? If we prepare ourselves as a bride is to prepare herself for her husband, right? That's where we're at in this day and time. 
Um, our, our LDS church history, if you want to write this down, volume 2, page 47, if you want to study this out. Our LDS church history, volume 2, page 47. The Lord promised Joseph Smith in the latter-day experience at Kirtland that if the saints would become righteous enough, he would appear to them in the school of the prophets in 1836. And if the priesthood involved had become able to bear the physical presence of the Lord in this school for a period of time, the Zion would have been brought forth in 1836. The Zion cannot be brought forth until the saints experience the continual presence of Christ. Look up that and study that out for yourself there. Volume 2, around page 47 in RLDS Church History. Just to show you again how important it is to have the presence of Christ, 3rd Nephi, chapter 5. Let's look at that real quick here, just to show you that it's the same in all the scriptures. Third Nephi, chapter 5. In verse 13, it says, this is in the, uh, um, the multitude in the temple, the land bountiful. He ministered to them during a three-day period. It says in verse 13, and it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth. For they remembered that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself unto them after his ascension into heaven. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, that ye may feel the, the uh, prints of the nails in my hands and my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. It was so important that he come personally and his very presence was there to teach them and to them to experience that uh, at that time in Land Bountiful there in the temple. So we have lots of records of the presence of the Lord uh, needed and us to be able to abide that. So let me ask you this question then. <clears throat> when uh, Joseph Smith, when he had this experience in the grove, what did he do with it? What was the response of Joseph? He what? He started telling people. He started right mentioning it. True? Reggie? He shared it with his father, and, and we're going back to how the Lord put, how God put things in order. And his father says, you need to continue with this. You right. need to search this out. You need to share this. The very first thing he did is he went to his father and told him about the experience. And his father, right, not only on this occasion, but also later on, confirmed the experience to him, right? And encouraged him to further, right, go. Why is it important that he went to his father? He got confirmation from his father because his father, again, had nothing to do with the church. Right. So it's not, he's not going to his buddy who agrees with him and they agree, oh yeah, this really happened. Right. No, he's getting the experience from someone who had absolutely nothing to do with God 
I mean, even when Joseph was confused at what church to go to when he was younger, he didn't grow up around it. It was his mother who taught him from the Bible. That's where he learned a lot of his reading and his writing was from the Bible itself. And that was from his mother, never from his father. Yeah. Yeah, he was going to someone who he obviously uh, wanted to uh, get, you know, the thoughts from. He respected his father. There's there's an importance about the father-son relationship, too. Even the, And you're right, he, his father had not uh, necessarily been super uh, involved in religion, per se, uh, but he was a godly man, we were told. He was a very godly man. Um, but what's interesting about this is his father confirmed to him that this was of the Lord. And like I say, not having the background, that in and of itself is amazing. And it was important because God respects the role of fathers. Him, not for not for Joseph, but it was for his father. And, and what he was told to do, right? The, the whole thing, and the reason why I'm bringing this up here is notice who section four is addressed to Joseph Smith Sr., right? It was important for Joseph Smith Sr. to have this experience too because of what his son had already experienced. And he told his son, right? He gave confirmation that this, this is from the Lord, you need to pursue this. And what's interesting about it is that there's this concept throughout the scriptures of the role of fathers, the law of thy fathers, okay? And you see this in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, you see it in the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon is filled with father-son relationships. I mean, it's, it's constant through the Book of Mormon. Uh, for example, right, you have Lehi and Nephi. Nephi, right, how does he start off with? Having been born of goodly parents, I was taught in the ways of my father, right? And he goes on to explain that. And they always said, uh, after they went and did something, I went back to the tent of my father, and told him what we had done. Now, that's not just idle. If you look up how many times it says, I go back to the tent of my father, it's mentioned many, many times in the Book of Mormon because it's not just a reference casually, yeah, I just went back, and it is, I went back to the tent of my father to get his, one, approval, and two, just to let him know what was going on. And there was an understanding there of the role of the fathers played with the sons. You have the same thing here in the Doctrine and Covenants and the same thing with Joseph Smith Jr. and Joseph Smith Sr. And the fact that he's going to become a father to the church, right, eventually, as, as the presiding patriarch. And how important it is that this message in Section 4 is given and is given to Joseph Smith Sr. through his son. Reggie? What I was going to, what I was going to share also is that the father-son relationship between Joseph Sr. And, and Joseph Jr. is also the relationship that is encouraged, not encouraged, but it's the same relationship be, be, between God and his son, Jesus Christ. Right. And going back to his mother teaching him, that's the role of the church, the role of the bride, mm -hmm. to, to teach the people, mm -hmm. then to go to the father to receive that confirmation. Yeah, the role of the church is to nurture and to bring up, right? And you're exactly right. Uh, Oakman, Apostle Oakman mentions, no one can claim to have God as their father that doesn't have the church as their mother. And that's, that, I think that's a great quote from Brother Oakman. I think that is true, right? The idea of the, of the relationship there. Um, it's important that he went back immediately and he talked to his father and got confirmation. And, and part of that confirmation then, right, he was told to move forward, right, with the work. Um, 
So he does that. What, what, uh, do we have a comment back here? Yes. I was only going to mention that that's type and shadow of us going to our Father in Heaven. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. What else does Joseph do in response to this? Wayne? He went and talked to the ministers who had been the ones who told him to read that scripture. And then they said that couldn't happen. Right. So the very ones who urged them to read the scripture, right, they then uh, end up eh, boohooing it, right? You, you, that, that wasn't real. God doesn't speak today. And this is the one thing that I want to really emphasize to you, that we tend to look at things from the standpoint of our vision. If you look at a broad, broad sense of what the restoration has already done, the restoration has had a big, big impact on the world. It really has. Because at the time this experience first happened, nobody believed that God spoke to people at that time. Nobody believed in angelic ministry, that angels appeared unto the people, right? No one believed that you could have that kind of personal relationship again. And what did the restoration ultimately do? It demonstrated that God does speak, that angels do appear, right? I mean, how many, and I mean, talk about restoration, right? How many times do we have angelic ministry throughout the beginnings of not only the original organization of the church, but also in the reorganization of it? Angelic ministry, I mean, it's throughout the scriptures and throughout the, the church history, okay? Uh, Angel Moroni, we have John the Baptist, right, who restored the priesthood authority of the Aaronic order, right, came and spoke. He says, upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I give unto you the priesthood of Aaron. We have Peter, James, and John, right? Uh, let's look at that real quick because I had somebody ask me that the other day. Where does that talk about that? It's in section 26, Let's look at that real quick since we're on it. <clears throat> this is all the things that were brought forth here. Um, let's look at verse 2 of section 26. Behold, this is wisdom in me, wherefore marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. And with Moroni, whom I have sent unto you to reveal the Book of Mormon, containing the fullness of my everlasting gospel. That's part of what was restored, right? To whom I have committed the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim, and also with Elias, to whom I have committed the keys or authority to bring to pass the restoration of all things, or the restorer of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began concerning the last days. And also John, the son of Zacharias, which Zacharias, he, Elias, visited and gave promise that he should have a son and his name should be John and that he should be filled with the spirit of Elias. And with John, I have sent unto you my servants, Joseph Smith, Jr. and Oliver Calgary to ordain you into this first priesthood, which you have received, that you might be called and ordained even as Aaron and also Elijah, unto whom I have committed the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers that the whole earth may not be smitten with a curse. And also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers, by whom the promises remain, and also with Michael or Adam, the father of all, the prince of all, the ancient of days, and also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and a special witnesses of my name and bear the keys of your ministry. So these are all angelic ministries sent 
to restore all of these things. Promises of the fathers to the sons and the covenants, the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of Melchizedek, right? The gathering of the tribes of Israel, all of these things, the Book of Mormon and the fullness of the gospel. Look at all has been restored. Do you take this lightly? What you have in your possessions that you are stewards over. All of these things, right? They're so important. Peter, James, and John, why was it needful that all three of them come and, and lay hands and ordain Joseph? Because of the keys and the ministry that they each had, right? What do we call, what was Joseph, what was his official title? Joseph Smith, Jr. of the church. Prophet, seer, and revelator, right? Okay. Peter was called by Christ himself a seer, right? He had to give that ability to Joseph, a seer. Right? Who's the revelator? John the revelator. That authority, that key, that ministry had to be given to Joseph as the revelator. And James, of course, was a great prophet in his own right. So you have prophet, seer, and revelator, which is the title we gave, or we didn't give, God gave to Joseph what he was called by, and all three of those things are found in those three who laid hands upon him. Not coincidental, right? See what was restored? Had to be brought back. Without that, there would be no way of coming into the presence of God. Just want to point out some of the scriptures here to you. Um, what if we reject this gospel? Let's look at Third uh, Nephi chapter 10, this restored gospel. we reject it we're going to be in trouble we, we were told that earlier in in uh, first nephi and third nephi there's a promise also if we accept it third nephi chapter 10 verse 1 speaking of the of the gentiles if they will repent and they will hearken unto my words and harden not their hearts i will establish my church among them and they shall come in unto the covenant and be numbered among this the remnant of Jacob, unto whom I have given this land for their inheritance, and they shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob. So we have Joseph's land here, the remnant of Jacob. You have the promise here that they will be numbered among. Now, this is an interesting concept. Sometimes in patriarchal blessings, you'll have somebody that's given a blessing, and it'll, it'll say in the patriarchal blessing, you are of the house of Ephraim, or you are the house of Manasseh, or whatever. And sometimes it's worded differently, and it says, you shall be numbered among Ephraim, or numbered among. So what's the difference between those two statements? None, none of us are actually blood of Israel. So none of us could actually be part of that house. It's blood that you're part of. But, I mean, and when it talks in the Book of Mormon that... He will restore his church. Mm -hmm. It's to his promised people, mm -hmm. to the Israelites. Mm -hmm. It's not to us. We are the Gentiles. But it says that if we're faithful, we will be part of it. Mm -hmm. Because we already know that the Gentiles are going to reject his word. I mean, you can look right now. We're doing right. it right now. Right. So, But that's why, it, why it's we'll be among the, okay. the tribe because we're not, we're not blood. None of us are. 
Yeah, there, there may be actually, there may be some out there that do have some bloodlines go back. They may not even sure. know it, but you're right. So there's a difference there in the patriarchal blessing, right? When it says you are of this particular house or tribe versus you'll be numbered among, right? And that's saying that the promise is given to that particular house, that particular blessing, right, is to also be yours as a part of that covenant relationship if you are faithful, right? And usually if you read in the patriarchal blessings, there's, there's always that condition of being faithful and obedient uh, that you can receive those, those blessings and promises. And so you're part of that, right? When we talk about Israel of, of, of previous time and we talk about latter-day Israel, right, those promises are extended to you through what was restored. That's quite a thing, right? The Gentiles will be given this opportunity, right? Now, we know that many of the Gentiles have rejected that, right? We know that what we see going on. But many, there will be those who will respond also. And there will be a Jerusalem, and there will be a new Jerusalem, right? And both places are set up by the hand of God for the gathering of his elect from the four quarters of those who will hear his voice and obey it and come to him. So that should give you a lot of hope and encouragement. We talked about hope and faith last night, right? Can you, can you really exercise hope and faith if you don't even know what to have faith in? That's why you got to know these scriptures. That's why we got to be literate, right? We can't be illiterate of what the Lord has said because there's so many promises that you can exercise faith and hope in of what we need to be doing and to be a part of the, of the marvelous work. All right. Um, somebody, I thought I had a hand over here. Maybe not. Okay, good spot for a stop then. Is that what yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, Wilson's giving me the signal here. We'll take a five, seven minute break. Let you guys use the restroom. He needs to stop and change. And uh, we'll convene here in about five minutes or so.